I'm Joe Forish, and this is You Say Data, I Say Data podcast. We talk about data, analytics, and its impact on business and society. We are the podcast for the Analytics Impact Network. Please visit us at analyticsimpactnetwork.org. On today's show, our guest is Karen Heimsoff. Karen is an accomplished executive in commercial aviation finance. She has a long track record of success in the industry and is also a member of the International Society of Transport Aircraft Trading. Additionally, she is a founding member of AIN. Karen, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Joe. I'm very excited to be here. I'm also excited about our new venture as well. I think you're doing a fantastic job on these podcasts, and I can't wait to see where this goes. Thank you. It's much appreciated. I want to start where it all began. What was it like growing up on the West Coast? So growing up in San Francisco, like you said, it was in the heart of the Silicon Valley. But at that time, when I first started college, it was just in its infancy stage. So I really didn't know too much about it. I had already decided to move into accounting. I did have a computer science class, but that involved punch cards and it wasn't exciting at all. So yes, so I had no idea that I would be involved in studying data at this time in my life, nor did my beginnings point to that in in any way, shape, form, or fashion. Can you tell us about the high school teacher that had a very strong impact on you? So this was also unexpected, but really a godsend. All through school, I just had an affinity for math. I'm just wired that way. I loved it. By the time I was going to high school, they'd run out of math classes for me to take. So I was going to a local college and I had every intention of majoring in math. However, I needed a few electives and I thought, well, accounting sounds interesting. And it was going to be taught by a teacher that wasn't really a teacher. He had gone to this high school, which was really in a lower middle class community that didn't have a lot of resources. And he offered to kind of give back and introduce accounting to the students in our high school. So I signed up for that. And I remember walking up to the class, I saw this beautiful black convertible Corvette pull into our parking lot. And I promise you that is not what populated our parking lot. And this man came out and started walking toward the class that I was walking toward. And I realized, oh my gosh, that's the new instructor. So he introduced himself and I thought, well, this is very cool. And he explained that he had gone to the high school, came from very modest beginnings as well, but he lucked into studying accounting in college. And that afforded him throughout the years to start his own accounting practice. And as I I looked at different colleges, I applied both as a math major and to be an accounting major. And I ended up getting a full ride in accounting to a couple institutions and I chose one close to home. And so that's how it got started. And I found that accounting was so much easier. (laughs) That's remarkable. I I feel that when you describe your teacher in high school, that that image is forever singed upon your brain because he had this black Corvette, he pulled off at the school and you were like, wow, like who, who is this guy? Yes, because back in the day, we still viewed accountants as kind of people with, you know, the green uh, lamp and the, yes. the shades. This man was epitome of cool. He had, <laughs> at that time, bell bottoms were in and he had beautiful bell bottoms. I mean, he just, he had the whole thing going on. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> 
I might have had a teeny crush. He was way too old for me, but I might have had a teeny, teeny, teeny like girl. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. That's a, that's a great story. I, I really love it. So, so you went to school, you, you majored in accounting, you finished, and then you started working in public accounting soon after finishing school? I did. As I mentioned, accounting was really pretty easy. I didn't realize that you didn't need to take 18 units a semester. That was six classes. That's what we took in high school. So that's what I signed up for in college. So I finished really early and um, was lucky enough to get internship with Ernst & Young. I almost went to work for them, but I felt like Deloitte had better clients. So I enjoyed six years with Deloitte and they were absolutely fantastic. I loved every minute of it. Can I tell you just one more little um, yeah, please. fun fact? All right. So while I was studying accounting, I went to work for an airline services company mm. as a bookkeeper. And that's where I got my first exposure to aviation. But again, there were people that worked in certain jobs and they had to be there at this time for different deadlines. But with bookkeeping, as long as I got the work done by, say, X, I could put in those hours anytime I wanted. So again, that flexibility was very, very attractive. Yeah, I guess the only real crunch time is month end close, right? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. After Deloitte, you moved to commercial aviation. How did you do it? One client in particular, US leasing, big part of their business was aircraft leasing, commercial aircraft leasing. Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. And in evaluating their accounting records, I saw that they made the most money from that business. The people in that division needed to travel were very exciting places, Paris, New York, Boston, LA, London, Rome. They also had a huge division for rail car leasing. Those folks traveled to Indianapolis and you know just some other <laughs> more quiet. More they, quiet they, were they were domestic, right? <laughs> quiet locations. When a firm approached me, GATX, to recruit me to go over to the firm, I thought I was going to stay with Deloitte and just try to make partner and be there lifelong. But GATX approached me and in talks with them, I thought, I am just so in love with aviation. I want to give this a go. They wanted to hire me as controller. They're a Fortune 500 company. And I agreed to do that job as long as they would consider transferring me into the commercial aviation group within 18 months. And that's what they agreed to. And that's what happened. So you got there and what was it like? So I got there and it was even more exciting than I imagined because now I was in the thick of things. And I was, I started there as a financial analyst and right in my wheelhouse, right? Loved it. It was interesting in that I was the first woman that they allowed in that division ever. Wow. Wow. Yes. And the let's, let's, let's talk about that a little bit more. What, what was that like? Okay. So the president of the division tried so hard to talk me out of it. You're going to hate this. And he didn't say the words, you're going to be the only woman, but it was well known. You're going to, you're not going to really like this. And I said, yes, I will. <laughs> <laughs> and he was really pushing up against the 18 months, but senior management had already committed this to me. Right. So he had no choice, but, but to take me and didn't want to. But I really, I worked so hard. I did a great job. And he ended up being my number one mentor. Within six months, he became completely a fan and just would, you know, was absolutely had my back and promoted me and wow. made sure I got good assignments. It was just incredible. Wow. So you won him over pretty quickly. I worked my tail off. So yeah. <laughs> but, and I did do a good job. I did a good job. And I love people. 
And I think, you know, some of the, the folks were a little bit skeptical. I take direction well for the most part. And I try not to insert my own ideas, even though I had some at the time. I just tried to learn the business and put my head down and really try to do a little bit more than was required. People appreciated it. It was just, it was incredible, like I said. So I, yeah, it exceeded my expectations. So for some of our listeners out there who may not know what commercial aviation is, can you give us a little overview to understand it a little bit better? Everybody understands you take a flight and you get on a plane. Most people fly with large carriers like United or American, Southwest. The planes that those airlines utilize are commercial, for the large part, commercial aircraft. So what our firm would do would be to approach a Boeing or an Airbus, negotiate aircraft on spec. We would call on airlines and negotiate lease rates for those deliveries. And then we would go out into the capital markets to secure equity and debt financing. So we were basically marrying three different parties um, because airlines didn't want to own all their aircraft. They like to have flexibility in their fleet and they, they manage that through leases. Typically, how long is a lease for a plane? Most aircraft have a lifespan of 20 to 30 years. Not all leases are 20 to 30 years. Some, some were 20 years, finance leases, but many were shorter than that. So if United, for example, was leasing an aircraft from us for seven years, at the end of that seven years, we would renegotiate the lease for an extension, or we would go out to market uh, to secure operation by a different airline. Airlines loved us because we provided flexibility in their fleets. And then the manufacturers really liked us because we were just another customer. So it was just kind of a, it was one of those situations where it truly was a win, win, win. That's amazing. I think I know where my next investment is going to be. Yes. And the, and the travel was just unbelievable. Yeah. I believe you told me a story. Maybe you could rehash it here for everyone about taking clients to the South of France for a, was it a roadshow? I'm, I'm not quite sure what that was. We would have annual partners meetings. And then we would also have semi-annual events. I'll just call them events. Every other year, there is an international air show in Paris and then alternating years just outside of London. And so most of the time, big players in commercial aviation finance will be involved in those air shows in some capacity. They'll have meetings and also scheduled negotiations for new deals the large players in the international market would, would always be there. So we would try to schedule some kind of fun partnership time out right outside those venues, either before or after these air shows. So uh, one of the years we, we took our clients, our partners to the South of France, and we spent a week there. Of course, husbands and wives are included. And we, we negotiated new transactions. We updated the partners on the profitability of the existing deals. So we did have meetings every day, but we also had a lot of fun in the process. And then alternating every February, clients would want to go to, there's a, a huge air finance conference in Geneva, Switzerland. And so we would have to schedule meetings again around the conference. And, and so those are two things that were just a must do each year. Yes, yeah, so it was, it was great travel, great fun. Great fun. life experiences and not just for me, but my husband and for, you know, husbands and wives and, and partners and families. Oh, that's great. <laughs> <laughs>
That's great. So you worked in aviation for a long time, but recently you went back to school to get a master's of science in aerospace and aviation. How yes. did that happen? Yes. In 2000, I um, had our last children. We thought we were going to have our fourth child and we had twins. So we went oh, from three oh. children to five children in very short order. And it is almost impossible to travel with five children at home. So I left the industry. I left corporate America and raised my kids for the next decade and a half. Mm -hmm. And as my youngest, the twins were halfway through high school, I realized that I just miss corporate America. I loved mm -hmm. it. I love the aviation industry and I really wanted to get back in. And the industry was thriving, but my skills were dated. It'd been a long time so since I had been involved full time. And I, I found this program at Purdue and I was able to do a lot of it online because we live in Chicago, Purdue's obviously in Indiana. It was just terrific. I had the best experience, terrific professors, amazing colleagues, amazing cohorts. I believed by getting my master's of science that would show that I've updated skills and also that I'm still capable of grasping new material. Yes. And also this is more technical and engineering oriented than all the finance experience they had before. So it was a nice compliment. I had every intention of beginning work after that. And then one of my professors mentioned this HVAC program said that he had, he had known the, one of the admissions directors. And he suggested, he thought that this would really be that sort of the cherry on the Sunday to do this. And he thought I could do it in one school year. Uh, my response was, oh, no, no, no. Do you know how old I am? But he really, he made it exciting. And uh, I was contacted by the submissions director. I thought they're not going to, they're never going to accept me. But she said, just, we're going to waive the application fee. Go ahead and apply. And wow. I just, I was shocked they accepted me. And I talked to my family about it. They said, how can you not go? It was always a, my lifelong dream to go to Harvard. Oh, it was awesome. just a in the sky. And so I jumped in with both feet, jumped in the pool. That's great. And we actually met because we were in the same cohort, cohort seven, also known as cohort 007. Yes. Yes. Oh my gosh. I, I mean, you and the other friends that we made, our other fellow cohorts, what an extraordinary gift. Yeah, I, it's I, been pretty I, incredible. I can't believe it. And, the, and our professors, I mean, the world-class professors, again, something that I, I thought, okay, it can't be better than I have in my imagination. And yet it exceeded it by double at least. Yeah. I enjoyed every class thoroughly. I learned so much. I, I would do it again if. <laughs> <laughs> if it didn't feel like drinking water from a fire hose, that that's what someone had said it was going to be like. And they were yeah. right. If it wasn't that most of the time I would do it again. I'm not sure I could do it again. I'm not, I'm not sure I could do it again. It was a lot. As it relates to your career, Karen, with, you know, you went back to school for two different degrees and a lot of it seems like it's very focused on science and data and very heavy technical skills. How has a lot of that changed within the industry from you know, when you left to, to now? So this is the most surprising thing. The industry has not really changed much since really? I left. It's very old school. It's very traditional. What I don't think that a lot of players in the industry realize is that the, the digital transformation, digital transformation, that is leaving the station. And so many have not even really dipped their toe in. I see so many ways that this can help facilitate 
people's profitability, their success in arranging certain transactions, the scaling of their businesses with really not that much investment, it, it, it's very exciting to me. Now, I will tell you, in the spring, I was well down the road with a few firms in terms of going to work right after, right after we graduated, and then we had COVID hit. Mm-hmm. And since COVID hit, the aviation business, it's in the news every day, is down 80 to 90% still. Mm-hmm. And it, it looks it looks like it's going to be horrendous for the foreseeable future. So not only are people not hiring, they're having to lay off. I think Boeing a month ago had to lay off 10,600 employees. So it's it's wow. really it's really really tough. And I know a lot of people in these hiring and firing capacities, and it's devastating them, right? Because these they care about their employees. On the other hand, it makes the application of data analytics even more imperative because things are hitting the fan and and these airlines these institutional investors even the manufacturers are really they're running around with their hair on fire in the past the industry moved at a certain pace and so firms were able to garner information at a at a fairly manageable rate and incorporate that into their financial models and so on and so forth People are not afforded that kind of leisurely time now. This, the, these are emergency situations. They're going to be forced to apply these analytical tools. So in a weird way, there may be more opportunity than I even imagined because of the difficult situation. And this is not expected to improve overnight. This is going to take years. And when you say improve, you mean just in terms of like the, the health status in the world and people's fear of getting on planes, or you mean at the, the companies themselves in terms of the transformation to more of a digital company? Well, all of the above. Oh, okay. All of the above. Because right now, the airlines have pretty much 10% of regular demand, mm-hmm. and they cannot operate aircraft they can't operate their entire fleets like they were doing so with just 10%, yeah. with 90% available capacity, they can't do it. Um, they're burning cash. I'm sure you see this in the news as well. And the government won't be able to afford to continue these hundreds of million dollars of, of bailouts every several months. So airlines are, are going to have to predict how much they need to consolidate their fleets immediately. And that involves early return of aircraft to lessors or renegotiating storage or not taking delivery of new aircraft that are scheduled to come on this year, next year, 2022. So, so the airlines are dealing with all of these things. The manufacturers are also dealing with a similar situation. They know their airlines are in dire straits. Their clients, for the most part, are in dire straits. And so They've had to lay off people and cut back production, but they're doing this based on old traditional predictive models, which don't incorporate, as far as I know, for the most part, any kind of AI convolutional neural networks. And really, if they were able to employ that in short order to some capacity, they could scale up their predictability with not a big investment. So I think there's a huge opportunity there. And then on the institutional investor side and the lessor side, airlines now are not able to pay rent. They're not able to pay their the lease rates on these planes. And airlines are wanting to return these planes even to lessors and these institutional investors. So 
also in trying to negotiate, well, what if, what if we charge power by the hour? What if we, again, in the past, there were all this available market data. Now the market data, it's changing so rapidly, it's almost impossible for them to calculate what is appropriate in real time. So again, by employing these data analytics tools that we've learned um, and know how to employ, it really is going to be, I think, an important method to help all of these different players stay solvent. No one wants to play hardball in this arena because it's bad for everyone, but there's so many moving parts and really traditional models are not able to handle the rapidity of the moving parts at this point. Only by applying artificial intelligence and the data analytics models that, that we've been fortunate enough to learn is that going to be able to handle the situation, in my opinion. It sounds like it's a very compelling opportunity right now. Would these data analysis abilities be developed in-house or by a third party? Such a good question. And I think the answer to that is there definitely is opportunity in both areas. These large companies do have data analytics groups. What the challenge has been, and I do think why senior management has not given it too much credibility, is many times there's often a not a great connection in adequate communication between the business people and the data scientists and the programmers. Because the data scientists and the programmers really don't know the business and the business people really don't understand the language of data scientists and programmers. And so what the business people think that they're requesting is something different than they're really requesting. And when they get back something that they're not expecting and is not helpful, then it creates kind of a wall between. And again, that's why I think our program is invaluable because not only are we business people, but we've been given the tools of how to program and how to communicate. We as HBAPR alum are the bridge between those two groups that are really gonna help both sides. Yeah. Uh, and I, I don't think that's been in existence before. At the same time, I think as people that can communicate in both languages, if you will, there's plenty of room for startups as well. I will tell you, when I, when I started in aviation in 1990, it was a worldwide recession. There were a number of air, uh, airlines that went bankrupt that year. So it mm -hmm. was just a mess. It was a hot mess. <laughs> However, it was a hot mess. However, I believe that I was, I was given the opportunity to do more things than I otherwise would have and given more challenges because everything was a hot mess, right? And so it was right. all hands on deck. And I feel it's the same environment now. So I feel horrible for everybody that's involved, but I think it's, a, it's also a great opportunity for people that have some ingenuity. In our first class in HBAP, it was called Digital Strategy and Innovation. There was a case study and Karen actually won the case study. So I think she'd be very good at tackling this problem. I think I won because I had a great partner. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. Good, good at teamwork. And this aviation problem, there's more than one other party involved. So you can definitely make it a go. I think there is a lot more luck than skill involved, truth be told. But I love the trophy. Keeping the trophy. <laughs> Given that you've spent so much time in aviation, do you have your pilot's license? I did. I did, oh, did? back in the, I did back okay. in the day. And I love, like I said, I love everything aviation. So 
being in the industry for so long, just about everyone I knew, even in finance, was a pilot. And so I can't tell you how many wonderfully different kind of aircraft I've been on. Oh, wow. Uh, yes, and gliders and all kinds of crazy, crazy things. It's just been, it's been a wild, a wild ride. Okay, but anyway, why didn't I get my pilot's license? Because I had, I kept having these children and <laughs> very difficult to do. Yeah. So anyway, and by the time I had my twins, then I had five kids. I really didn't have any time to, to do any of that. That's understandable. That window, that window escaped me, but I'm happy to be taken around as a passenger. Anytime, any type type of plane, you name it. I'm, I'm up for it. Well, you can still do it. Your, your kids are older now, right? So you have a bit more free time and clearly intelligent enough to do so. Well, that's Maybe a little bit of a push here, Karen. Maybe you should. You know, that's go very for sweet. It. My, my new thing is I really want to do skydiving in a lot of different places. And my, my kids are against all of this. <laughs> you're not getting your pilot's license. You're not going skydiving. How can data be better used within aviation? From what I've seen, there's a lot more public information than many firms realize. You know, where data can be scraped and used. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's happening. And I think there's huge opportunity there as well. And on an ethical basis, I don't mean like some kind of dark scraping of data. No, I mean, I think the most important part of this is that a lot of players are reluctant to get involved in data analytics because they don't really trust it. They don't really understand it. And many in senior management are really senior, right? And so it's so outside their wheelhouse they don't really want to go there. However, in this environment with all these variables changing so rapidly, they almost are not going to have any choice. Otherwise, they're going to be susceptible to making very poor business decisions or not or uninformed business decisions that have long-term ramifications. So I think that's the most important part of the situation where we stand today in terms of having to move having to do the digital transformation as a necessity, not because they want to, but because they have to. There is one question that I ask all guests. It's a funny question. I want to know for you, do you say data or data? I try to be respectful of who I'm with. So I think both are acceptable. Some people find, depending on what they use, the opposite, objectionable. We obviously know what's being talked about, whether we say data or data. So I don't really understand the big controversy, but it just as a natural thing. I say data. Okay. Yeah, I but say if data you want me to well. use data, I'm, I'm, I'm the team player. I'll say data. Well, this has been great, Karen. Thank, thank you so much for the time. Thank you, Joe. Yeah. That's, I really enjoyed it. You're really a natural at this. <laughs> oh, please. <laughs> it's true. It's true. It was great to be here. Thank you for listening to the You Say Data, I Say Data podcast. To become a member, sponsor, donor, or podcast guest, please visit us at analyticsimpactnetwork.org.